pray. Father, how we love to sing your praises, especially at Christmas time. These songs that we sing, it just seems that our forefathers um, were especially gifted by your Spirit to communicate the truth of the Incarnation. And so we love singing about what you've done for us and how you you humbled yourself, not just to behold the things that are in heaven and on earth, but to become one of us. So we praise you for that. Help us now, Father, as we look at this book that you have given us, how you have revealed yourself, how you have revealed your will for us. Give us ears to hear. Give us a heart to receive and apply what we hear. And may we do it to the praise of your glory. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This will not be a Christmas sermon. That'll be next week and the week after. Today, if you have your Bibles, if you could just turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Throughout the scriptures, followers of Jesus are invited and commanded to pray. And when you think about it, it really is a magnificent privilege to be invited to talk to God. I mean, ponder that for a minute. Christians are actually invited to talk to God, who knows everything, who created everything, who sustains everything, who sovereignly rules over everything, and is never confused or outwitted about anything. We get to talk to him. And often, when we do speak to God, we talk to him about the needs of other people. And that's good because we are commanded to pray for one another. But I wonder this morning how often we simply pray to encourage another believer with our prayers. That they might hear us talk to God or read about us talking to God, if you do it by text or email or nothing bad about that. Look, Paul did it by letter, right? But how encouraged would they be to hear you talk to God about them? While prayer is a magnificent personal privilege, I want to submit to you that it is also perhaps one of the best ways to express love and care for others. Think about it. When someone comes to you with a direct word of encouragement, I mean, it can, be, it can certainly be pleasant and uplifting, and we want to do that, and we do. I, I, I have been the recipient of that many, many times, and I know if you've been at Calvary Bible Church for any length of time, so have you. We love to encourage one another. But when I learned that someone has been using their audience with God to speak on my behalf, thanking God for what he has done in me and petitioning God that he would meet my needs, I mean, that strikes me as a great kindness and as a wonderful, penetrating act of love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, listen carefully to this, Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, spiritual love will speak to Christ about a brother more than to a brother about Christ. Let me say it again. 
Spiritual love will speak to Christ about a brother more than to a brother about Christ. It means we, we talk to God about those we love. And I want to suggest that sometimes we need to do it in their hearing. What I'm encouraging you do, to do this morning is to learn to love one another through prayer. And I think that's exactly what Paul is doing in the first 14 verses of his letter to the Colossians. He is loving and encouraging the believers at Colossae through his prayers. Now, he's going to get real doctrinal. He's going to take us into the depths of uh, really the deep end of theology as we go. But at the beginning here, it's just a really sweet word of encouragement. Now, of course, the practical question you may have is, how can I possibly offer love and encouragement to others through the act of praying? And that's a good question. And Paul meets that question with two kinds of prayer, which when offered in the hearing or in the reading of the one prayed for, it expresses tremendous encouragement and love. Now, there are two main sections to our text this morning that reveal the two ways that we can pray for one another's encouragement. And number one is, thank God for the observable fruit of their salvation. Thank God for the observable fruit of their salvation. And secondly, ask God for specific growth in their sanctification. Ask God for specific growth in their sanctification. About a week ago, my son Wesley, my daughter Maddie, organized a party for him, people who were closest to him, to give him a send-off. He went off to boot camp, which is where he's at now. Uh, praise the Lord and pray for him. <laughs> um, and we had a time of prayer. And I had just finished studying this uh, just about two weeks ago. And I thought, what a, great, what a great test case this will be. And I was the first one to pray. And I began praying for my son. And you know what? I don't know if it encouraged me, encouraged him, but it, it certainly encouraged me that in the word of God, we are taught not only that we should pray, but we are all often taught how to pray. And this is a kind of instruction that, I, that never occurred to me before. And what a delight it was to, to wrap my arm around him before he leaves for boot camp and to let him hear his father say, Oh God, I praise you for the evidence of Wesley's salvation. He knows you. I know he knows you because of his love for your word and because of his love for the gospel. How even at McDonald's the other day, he was standing sharing the gospel with someone while we were on our way home from uh, Billings, Montana for Thanksgiving. And I just went on through a list of things that I've seen in his life. And I thought later, how encouraging that would have been for me as a teenage boy to have men who came beside me and prayed like that. And then to transition into what I believe Wesley needs. What do you need in boot camp? Perseverance. <laughs> and not just persevering physically under the physical demands and the emotional demands of everybody yelling at you. He's a homeschool kid. He's not used to people yelling at him, right? But Lord, preserve his faith. Strengthen him. Make him strong. Help him, help him to know your will and to pursue the knowledge of your will. 
while he is there and look for opportunity to minister to others and increase his ability, his sharpness in ministering to others while there. This is what I'm encouraging you to think about this morning. Now, before we dive into the text, let's take a moment to honor the Lord through the public reading of his word. If you have your Bible, stand with me, and we're going to read Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ, Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in every respect, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you can be seated. What I want us to be aware of as we start into this letter is that the first 14 verses are intended to greet and to encourage. Uh, around our church office, uh, we're always talking about getting the point of the text right. And certainly that was true in the past two weeks of studying this passage. We want to get Paul's message right. We want to understand what he's really doing, what he's saying here, what he wants us to get and significantly, Paul approaches this by revealing how he's been praying for the Colossians. He begins the first section, verses 3 through 8, by saying, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. We always thank God when we pray for you. And then he transitions into the second section in verse 9 by saying, And so from the day we have heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you, etc. And in that case, he's asking for specific things. I can only conclude from this that the point of this first 14 verses of Colossians is to encourage the Colossians. And it's also why I've concluded that this will, this will be a great way for us to learn to pray to bless and encourage one another, our believing friends and family. 
Now, by way of context, briefly, since we covered a lot of this last week, we should remember at this point, after three years of preaching in the synagogue and teaching at the school of Tyrannus, Paul has been arrested. He's been taken to Rome, where he's under house arrest. Epaphras, having heard that he had been arrested and taken off to jail, uh, takes it upon himself to track him down. And he does. He goes to to Rome, to minister to him, and to inform him about the health of the church, which is the reason that Paul wrote this letter, which he says throughout here. Epaphras has told me about your love in the Spirit. Epaphras has told me about your good faith. Epaphras has told me. So there he is. Epaphras is with Paul under house arrest, and he's informing Paul about the condition of this church. And much of the news that he delivered to Paul is good. Though the church was young, Consider this, a young church about half the age of our own church plant, a Living Hope Bible Church, not even that old, and yet it was fairly strong, and there were few, if any, internal problems to mention. There were certainly a lot of external forces at play, and Paul repeatedly says, don't let them, don't let them, don't let them, as if they hadn't yet, they hadn't gotten into the church yet, but it was all around them whatever the false teaching was. And so after a brief salutation in verses 1 and 2, which I'll let you study on your own, by the way, that is a very rich introduction and salutation. But Paul then sets out to encourage these saints by revealing to them how he prays for them. And the first kind of prayer that he talks about is the kind of prayer that thanks God for observable fruit of their salvation. He's thanking God for the observable fruit of their salvation. So he says, uh, this, and I think it's printed in your bulletin, the first point, verses 3 through 8, that we should thank God for the observable fruit of someone's salvation. And, and this is what we see in verses 3 through 5. Let me read that again. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. In verse 3, Paul is saying, every time I pray for you, I give thanks to God. Every time I pray for you, I give thanks to God. That was so refreshing for me in my study these last two weeks to be reminded once again in a fresh way that that's how I should be praying for you. I mean, every day when I'm lifting you up or, or sometimes when I'm during the week coming here to the, to the chapel and I kind of stand where I know you sit <laughs> and I pray for you and praying that, that giving thanks to God for the evidence of your salvation to the degree that I know that. Now notice what Paul thanks God for. He says, we always thank God because we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Now, let's make an important observation here, a very important observation here, a very important doctrinal observation here. Paul, listen carefully, Paul is thanking God for the believer's faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, he is giving God the credit for their faith. Isn't that remarkable? And Paul told the, you should say, yes, amen, or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that is remarkable, right? Is it remarkable or isn't it? Or are you just bored by that? And it's just the same old doctrine. Does it affect your heart? 
Let it affect your heart. I know it's hard to watch someone speak for the better part of an hour, but try to stay with me. In Ephesians, you remember Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You learned this as a child probably or as a young Christian. And Paul said this, by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, that what? That faith or that salvation and faith is the gift of God. It's a gift of God. And by the way, to the Corinthians, Paul said this, no one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. I mean, you can say the words, but you can't mean it. Unless God, the Holy Spirit, has put that in your heart. You see, saving faith is a gift of God. Paul understands this and is giving God the credit for the believer's faith in Christ Jesus. That is, He's giving thanks for the observable fruit of their salvation. I know of a man who, a godly, godly man, and a very well-known biblical counselor, and he became extremely depressed. And all of his counseling buddies were helping him. And one of the things that that happened in his life was he began to, to doubt his salvation. And I remember... And one of my mentors was was involved in that. And he looked at this dear brother and he said, Brother, I know you. I know your life. I've seen the fruit of God's saving grace in you. It is unmistakable. So listen to me when I say, if you are not a child of God, none of us are. And that brother told me, that was the most encouraging thing I've ever heard in my life. That this broken person can still be a child of God. So Paul was witnessing and bearing witness in his prayers to the observable fruit of their salvation. Listen, Paul believes something that a lot of professing Christians find hard to accept. Namely, that mere profession of faith in Christ is sufficient evidence that one truly belongs to Christ. Where there is true saving faith, there will also be a life of faith. Faith moves. Faith does. Faith acts. That is, a life of joyful obedience to the word of Christ. That is faith. It is stepping forward. It is moving in obedience to the word of God. In faith. This is why Jesus once asked the people who claimed to be his disciples, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do the things that I command you? That's not real faith. What do you have faith in? People all the time say, well, I have faith. I'm a man of faith. Yeah, but what is your faith anchored to? You? Is it faith in faith? Or is it faith in Christ? If it's faith in Christ, true faith in Christ, there'll be evidence. The believers... In the church of Colossae were people whose faith in Christ was readily observable, and Paul thanked God for it. But this was not the only observable fruit in their lives. Once again, verse 4 says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and, watch this, your love for all the saints. In this case, it is love. It is their love that is the observable fruit of their salvation. 
Paul had been told by their pastor, Epaphras, that the believers in Colossae not only said that they believed in Jesus, they also loved one another, which was a fruit or evidence of their salvation. This was observable fruit of their salvation. And, and this makes sense when you understand what true love is, right? You say, oh no, pastor, are you going to give us a definition of love again? You bet I am. And you're going to say it with me. This is so critical, so critical that we don't misunderstand what love is. You can probably say it with me. If you can, just go ahead and, and quote it with me out loud. Here we go. Ready? To love is to give what I have that you need because God wants me to, regardless of how I feel. Let me say it again. To love is to give what I have that you need because God wants me to, regardless of how I feel. And we often leave off that last phrase, regardless of how I feel. Listen, if to love is to give, then you can do it no matter how you feel. And just as a refresher, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he, what, gave Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and what? Gave. And did he feel good about it? You don't have to feel good about it. You don't have to feel good about it. It can just be an act of faith. You're doing it even sometimes contrary to your emotions because you know that God wants you to love and you are compelled to love. You see, true love is observable. Epaphras had observed it in his people, and he told Paul about their joyful sacrifices for one another. And you think of Acts chapter 2. That was all over the place, right? The first evidence that something radical has happened is people started selling their property and giving the, the proceeds to one another to make sure everyone was taken care of. That's love. It's love. And you know what? When you love like that, when a husband and wife are loving like that, some really good things happen. Again, we need to remember, and Paul is thanking God for this fruit, he's giving God the credit for their love for one another. You can't love like this apart from the Spirit. But then there was a third observable fruit of their salvation. In verse 5, he continues. He says, because of, or on account of, the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now in the Bible, as in life, there are two kinds of hope. There is a sentimental hope, like, uh, gee, I hope I, w I win a million dollars. I don't know how I would ever, because I don't play, you know, the things that would win me a million dollars. But um, that's kind of a sentimental hope, you know. Some of, some of you ladies say, oh, I, I hope I get a husband someday, or, or man, I, I hope I get a wife someday. That's sentimental. Uh, there, there isn't a promise that, that you will. But maybe, you know, you're just hoping but there is another kind of hope that is anchored to the objective declarations and promises of God. And that is the kind of hope that's observable. The reason the Colossian Christians turned their back on their former paganism in obedience to God's word, which is faith, obedience to God's word is faith, the reason that they turned their backs on their former paganism is because when the gospel came, they anchored their lives to the eternal precepts and promises of God. That's hope. Everything that God has promised you, Paul says, is yes 
and amen. None of his promises fail. Biblical hope is what motivates Christians to live by faith. It's what motivated Paul. If it weren't for the resurrection, that is the promise of the resurrection, he says, uh, it, it would have been stupid for me to uh, battle the beasts in, Ephic, in Ephesus. You get the sense that he was either thrown into a Colosseum-like circumstance or he was referring to his enemies as animals. In any case, and what was he saying? He was saying, it doesn't make any sense for me to live like I live unless there is a resurrection. That's his hope. His hope is that this life is not all we live for. This is not all there is. His life was grounded, it was anchored in hope, and so it was with these Colossian Christians because that's what the gospel does. It creates faith in us, and and what is our faith in? Our faith is in his precious promises. All of them are future. They may be future relative to the next moment or may be future to when we die or when the Lord returns. Promises for all of them. It is our hope in heaven rather than having hope in the things of this world. And by the way, this too is a gift that Paul thanks God for. Like faith and love, hope is observable evidence of one's salvation. Think of this. When you meet a professing Christian who talks about the Bible as if they really believe it, they freely talk about the Word of God as if they really believe it, when you observe them loving others sacrificially because it just gives them joy to do it, and when you hear them verbalize their confidence in God in the midst of trial, what you are observing is evidence of salvation that comes from God. And Paul can't help but thank him for it. In the hearing, or in this case, in the reading of those dear saints in Colossae. And by the way, do these three virtues sound familiar? Faith, love, and hope. You probably know them better by a different formula. Faith, hope, and love. Which you're immediately now, those of you who are good students of the Bible, are thinking 1 Corinthians 13. These three remain. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Paul loved to talk about faith, hope, and love. And it's not just here in Colossians 1. And it's not just in 1 Corinthians 13. It's also in 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, same thing, and it's the same order as here. Not that the order matters that much, it's just an observation. But Paul used this formula a lot. He wants to see faith, hope, and love, and he commends it to you. And here he's praying, thanking God that he sees it in the life of the Colossians. What I'm proposing this morning is that one great way to encourage a believing friend or family member is to pray with them, thanking God for the observable fruit of their salvation. You say, what would a prayer like that sound like? How about this? Dear Father, I want to pray for my friend Bill who's really struggling with a difficult circumstance that only you can resolve. But before I ask about that, I want to thank you for the observable evidence of his salvation. Even in this trial, I see him responding in faith rather than unbelief. 
I've frequently seen in his life virtue that only your spirit can produce, such as love, joy, peace, kindness, self-control, among others. I often hear him speak of the ultimate hope he has because of your promises of eternal life and resurrection. Lord, I believe these characteristics are evidence in his life that you have given him saving faith by your grace. Thank you. Thank you for the evident fruit of salvation in his life. Would that kind of prayer encourage you? I think some of you are being encouraged by it right now. You can imagine maybe how encouraging it must have been for the Colossians when Epaphras returned from his long journey with a letter from no less than the Apostle Paul to gather together on the Lord's day and to listen to the reading of Paul's letter to them. What a gift. What an encouragement. What a blessing this must have been. And so first, with a desire to bless and encourage the Colossians, Paul thanks God for the observable fruit of their salvation. And then, in verses 5 through 8, Paul states what we learned about last week, namely, that this same gospel that has given them eternal hope is growing and spreading all over the ancient world. I'm not going to spend time on that because we talked about it a lot last week. He also mentions that Epaphras was the agent by which God originally sent the gospel to them, and that he is also the one who Paul... Um, who told Paul about their well-being. And again, I don't want to spend a lot of time on those verses because we talked about them last time. And th but that brings us to Paul's second prayer for them. The first, in verses 3 through 5, he thanks God for the observable fruit of their salvation. And next, he prays to God for specific spiritual growth in their sanctification. And, and this is point number two. Ask God for specific growth in sanctification. Be specific. If you know this person, if you love them, then think about what they need right now in terms of growth. Let's think about verses 9 through 14. We've already read it. What specifically did Paul ask for on their behalf? Well, he asks that God would fill them with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. One of the most important things to learn as a new Christian is how to discern the will of God for your life and for the next decision. Today, in our world, in our, even in our Christian world, many people attempt to discern the will of God by waiting for some spiritual, mystical impression or perhaps a revelation, personal revelation from heaven. Uh, you know, can I just say something about that? that the Apostle Paul and the other apostles, I assume, got that kind of revelation, but even for them it was rare. It was rare. As pagans, the Colossians would historically have turned to the priestesses of the pagan temples to discover the will of the gods for them. Or one could have visited an oracle who claimed to be able to tell one's future, for a price, the ancient Greek philosophers had created competing worldviews 
with all kinds of complex musings and mysteries. And, and Paul picks up their term, mystery, as we're going to see later in the text. And he's, in, in all of it, he's trying to show that Christ is preeminent. But the, the, the old religions of the Greeks were, were complex. They were mysterious, and they even called them mysteries. And it all sounded so erudite and intellectual and super spiritual and beyond the common man. But none of these approaches gave them true wisdom and understanding that they needed to come to God, to know God, to live in the will of God. You just couldn't get any of that from their methods. As Paul asked the church in Corinth, which was especially susceptible for such heirs, he says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Because the world through its wisdom could not come to know God. And likewise, he says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.20, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. There's a lot of false knowledge, false spiritual knowledge out there. There was in Paul's day, and I would dare say there's more of it today. Because there aren't major systems that, that, that by and large, it's not the major systems of, of religion that are ruling. It's just now everybody doing whatever is right in their own eyes. They come up with their own theology. Listen, do you want to know the will of God for your life? Listen carefully. It is readily available for you in God's sufficient word. And sometimes the Bible's teaching on the will of God, an individual teaching, sometimes is prefaced by phrases like this. This is the will of God. <laughs> for example, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is the will of God. Even your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Are you confused about the morality of sex in our generation? There's no reason for, for confusion if you're a believer. God's will is clear. Or how about 1 Thessalonians 5:18? Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You want to know the will of God? Read your Bible. Read the Bible. And if it's a complex question, then find someone who knows the word of God better than you to help you sort through to find a good answer from Scripture. I guarantee it's there. Listen, discerning the will of God for your life and for specific decisions in your life is mostly about learning God's priorities and values and aligning your life with them. Now, I have given you the illustration I'm about to, to share with you a, a number of times. And I thought about coming up with a new one, and I thought, you know, it might just be helpful for you to remember this, because it's a true story. I've told you about my son when it came time for him to find a college. What college should I go to, right? So that's a will of God question. And here's what we did. We said, son, you can go to any college you want to, but... We know God's priority for your life. And it would be wrong for you to check out of church for four years or however long you're in college. And so 
Here's the deal. How do we know what college God wants you to, to go to? Well, we don't know specifically, but we can really narrow the field by asking this. Is the college that you're looking at, does it have a really solid church nearby? Because that is God's will for you. We know that is God's will. And you know what? There are other areas uh, of your life where the scriptures are clear. This is God's will. This is God's will. This is God's command. This is God's precept. This is what God values. And you start lining them up and things start dropping off the table. And by process of elimination, you maybe come down to a, a small list of things that fit all of the parameters that you think are biblical. And then you're going to say, well, what do I do now? And my answer to that is, what do you want to do? Do what you want to do, then, after you've got all the other bases covered, do what you just want to do. And trust God's providence that he has led you there. Listen, this is a biblical model for how to discern the will of God. And Paul is saying to the, to the Colossians, I pray for you. I not only give thanks to God for your evident salvation, but I pray for you that you will grow in the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Most of the time, the will of God is expressed in commands and clear instruction. And beloved, think about this. One of the most amazing things about being a Christian is the mental stability we attain by learning what God wants us to believe what he wants us to think about, and what he wants us to do. Three major categories of life, and God gives us ample instruction on all of those issues. And consider this, I mean, those who deny God and those who hate his word live in a perpetual state of uncertainty about some of the most basic thing in life. Like, is it a boy or is it a girl? I don't know. Why don't you know? Because you're a fool. That's why. You have rejected God's word. And I suspect you could probably figure it out without reading the Bible. But God's word makes things clear. And you know what? You turn your back on God and his word. Those who deny him live in a perpetual state of uncertainty about these things. And and this leads to all kinds of insecurity and confusion. In Romans 1, Paul says it leads to a depraved mind. As Christians, however, we can know the mind of Almighty God. We can know the mind of the Messiah. We can know the mind of our Lord. We can know the mind of our Savior. Why? Because he's revealed it in his word. And so Paul prays that the believers in Colossae and in Fort Worth will be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And by the way, the word filled here, you ready for this? We believe in the, not just the inspiration of God, but the verbal plenary inspiration, which means it's not just the thoughts, it's the words. And it's not just the words but it's the tense voice and mood of those words. And here, in this case, filled is a passive verb. That is, it is something that God must do. To fill you with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, it's something that God must do. 
I want you to to feel in all of these things, giving thanks to God for faith and and all of that, hope, love, it's, it's all a gift of God. What I want you to hear me say is that the Christian life is a life of dependence. Everything we have from God has been initiated by God and given to us by God. You say, explain that. Can't. Can't. Except to say, God is God. And let God be God. Do you know, beloved, you can, you can actually, when it talks about being filled, and, and the fact that it, it, it is something that God must do, I want to illustrate that by saying this. You know, it's possible to read the Bible every day and not gain any spiritual wisdom and understanding from it. It's true. And every liberal, unbelieving Bible scholar experiences this every day. But when you open your Bible with a heart full of faith in Christ, and hope in his promises, and love for his people, and a desire to truly know God, the risen Christ fills you with true wisdom and understanding. As the psalmist said, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. I can't express to you what a non sequitur it seems to me that Dan Kirk would be the pastor of any church. I remember who I was as an unbeliever, and I was the proverbial idiot. I was the proverbial fool. And to think now, to think now that, that I have the capacity to stand before you and explain God's will for you and for me and to train my children how to live for Christ. And, and, and by the way, that's the same thing as, as living in a way that is best for them. I know how to counsel them. And you know where it didn't come from? It didn't come from my heart. It came from outside of me, the same as every other gift from God has come. It came from his word. It came by his spirit opening my heart and filling my heart with his word. And the same is true for you. You know why Calvary Bible Church is what it is today. I think of the unity here. Think of the the manifest love that you express toward one another, the sacrificial ministry, sometimes just crazy sacrifice for one another. Some of the things I've seen and heard that some of you have done is remarkable, and you didn't even hesitate to do it. Where does that come from? It comes from the Word of God as applied by the Spirit to hearts who are eager to receive all that the Lord has spoken. We love to obey him. We love to live in obedience to him. We think that the happiest and safest place in all the world is living according to the will of God. Even if that means being, you know, in some jungle trying to reach hostile natives, the safest and happiest place in all the world is to live in the will of God. The testimony of the Lord is sure 
making the simple wise. Paul wanted the Colossians to grow in wisdom. And so we pray to that end. In fact, this is what the entire book of Proverbs is about. I read uh, a proverb almost every day, a a chapter in Proverbs almost every day, and and I'm stunned and amazed that almost every day there is something in that particular chapter of Proverbs that I need, either for me personally or for something that I'm teaching or to make some decision or... And, and, and Solomon wrote it for his boys. And he had a lot of them because he had a lot of wives. But they were all going to be princes. They were all going to be leaders in his country. And so he said to them, Son, listen to my instruction. Gain wisdom. Get knowledge. It's important. And the only place to get the wisdom of Almighty God is in the word of God. So beloved, this is how Paul prays for the dear believers in Colossae. He asks God to bless them by filling them with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And do you know what happens when the Lord begins filling a person's soul with his wisdom and understanding? Well, a lot of other spiritual realities start kicking in. Like in verse 10, and I'm going to have to keep moving here, so Look at your Bibles and kind of piece this together with me. Verse 10. So follow along here. When you are filled with true spiritual wisdom and understanding, number one, you get clarity on what it means to live a life that's worthy of the Lord, a life that pleases him in every way. And along with it comes a desire to please him. Paul says, I make it my ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord. It's all through the New Testament in Paul's writings. We're seeking to be pleasing to the Lord. Now listen, that's different than satisfying the Lord. We can't satisfy the law's demands for ourselves, right? We can't satisfy God's demands for righteousness. Only Jesus can do that, and he did it, praise God. Thank you. (laughs) I'm trying to train you, you know, it's just, um, but here's the thing. When the Holy Spirit comes and fills your heart with his truth, you want to live in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord and you now know how to live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Paul said that's our ambition. Our ambition is life, is in everything to be pleasing to the Lord. And here in Colossians, we'll find him saying, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord. It's the same thing. Do all to the glory of God. It's the same thing. And again, in verse 10, when you're full of true spiritual wisdom and understanding, your life will bear abundant fruit for God through good works, that is, acts of love toward others that are motivated by an ambition to please the Lord. You're going to be fruitful And the fruit that you bear will be evidenced by your love for other people, even strangers, even your enemies. Again in verse 10, you'll be, uh, when you're full of spiritual wisdom and understanding, your knowledge of God will begin to deepen and sweeten. This is important because in John 17, Jesus defines eternal life as Knowing God. No, not knowing about God. Knowing God. 
I know a lot. I, I know some things about a lot of you. But you know what? I know my wife. I know my children. This isn't about knowing about. This is having a deep relational knowledge. You want to get to know God? You want to have a deep, vital relationship with God? This is exactly what Paul is praying for. God, give it to him. Give it to him. Drive them to your word. Give them a heart that wants to please you and understand what you have said. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In other words, eternal life is all about having an intimate, ever-deepening, and I would add, ever-sweetening relationship with God. But beloved, you can only experience growing in the knowledge of God by learning about him. And you can only get so much knowledge by observing the stars and creation. If you want to know God in depth, you've got to know his word. You've got to grow deep in his word. He has engaged in self-revelation. He is not hiding from you. He has given you the book that sits in your lap primarily so that you will know him. And then in verse 11, when you're full of true spiritual wisdom and understanding, you'll find that you have the power to endure suffering with patience and joy. Now that's important to some of you. You constantly are struggling with trial or pain or loss. When you're full of true spiritual wisdom and understanding, you get the power to endure suffering with patience and joy. Now that, beloved, is not an organically human capacity. What is natural for humans is panic. <laughs> and idolatry. Throw yourself into anything that you think will make you temporarily, temporarily feel better. But consider this. The reason Paul and Silas, for example, found themselves singing God's praises with joy in, the, in that dank prison cell in Philippi at midnight after having been stripped and, whip, and whipped to within an inch of their lives, that was not owing to the thrill of experiencing their best life now. Rather, their joy in the midst of suffering welled up from a heart that was able to see their circumstances through the clear lens of a deep knowledge of God and his will. They interpreted their circumstances not by the circumstances or by their pain, but rather by the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. They knew what this meant, that their suffering, they knew that their suffering had meaning because God is. Listen, long before Paul and Silas ever faced that trial, they had already become convinced that it was not only God's will for them to be saved, the Bible teaches that, that it was not only God's will for them to be sanctified, that's what the Bible says, it's not only God's will for them to be spirit-filled, that's what the Bible teaches, it's not only God's will for them to submit to authority, that's what the Bible teaches, but it was also God's will for them to, what, 
suffer. Do you know that? It's really helpful to know that. That somehow our good shepherd didn't get lost. He's trying to figure out how to get us back on the right path. No, no. If you're following the good shepherd, it's always the right path. It's always the right path. And so Paul says in Philippians 1.29, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And Paul and Silas were able to patiently endure suffering with joy because they were filled with true spiritual wisdom and understanding. And finally, and I think I'm going to have to come back to this next week. But let me just say what I've written here. Finally, verse 12, when you are filled with true spiritual wisdom and understanding, you will, thank, you will find yourself giving thanks to God for the strangest things, for the most unlikely things. You will find yourself giving thanks to God in everything and for everything. Because the true spiritual wisdom and understanding that God has given you reminds you daily that the Father, watch this, that the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. What does that mean? Well, it means, verses 13 and 14, that he has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus once observed that those who are forgiven much love much. And it's also true that those who know they have been forgiven much are the most thankful people in the world. Such people have tasted the grace of God in Christ and they know that they have been rescued, redeemed, ransomed by blood of Christ, that God set his affections on you even while you were his enemy. And he did everything necessary, even to the point of death, to save you, to rescue you. To be unthankful to the one who did that is treason. People who truly grasp that God has saved them, what God has saved them from, who know without a doubt that the only thing they deserve from God is his righteous and holy wrath, and remember what it was like to live in the kingdom of darkness without hope, without God in this world, who now, because of the infinite love and lavish grace of God, have been forgiven and rescued, such people can hardly keep themselves from giving thanks to God because he has redeemed them and he redeemed us for his own joy and for his own glory and so Paul for the Colossians great encouragement and joy prays he prays that God would cause them to grow in their sanctification and this is how he says it that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, 
bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The idea of deliverance here is a military term. You were held captive by your enemy and God's. And your champion, Jesus Christ, left his home, left his throne, and went on the attack. And he went after your enemy and mine. And do you know what was discovered? That the gates of Hades could not prevail against him. And though it appeared that they killed him, it was by his death that he won the victory. And was able to grant you eternal redemption, eternal forgiveness. What I take away from all of this, aside from the rich doctrinal truths in these verses, is that in my attempts to encourage and bless my believing friends and family, I can pray in their hearing or in their reading, thanking God for the observable fruit of their salvation, and asking God for growth in their sanctification. And you can too, to the praise of his glorious grace and to your own inexpressible joy. Father, we thank you for your word. It instructs us sometimes by command, sometimes by example. And here we we see the example of the Apostle Paul. And we want to learn from him. Give us hearts, Father, that are eager to learn to grow so that Jesus Christ will be evidently preeminent, preeminent in our lives. And all of it to the praise of your glory, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.